Hello and welcome to the Yorkshire Vets podcast. My name's Steve and with me is Stephen Robertson. Hello. He's one of our qualified vets and one of the uh, the owners of the practice. Um, this series is intended to give you a bit of an insight into the goings-on in a veterinary practice. Um, we hope to have some question and answer sessions um, throughout the course of the podcast. So if you have any questions about being a vet and working in the vet industry, then um, then get in touch and let us know. Um I suppose a little bit about about us as a surgery and, and us as people would be a, a good start. Um, Yorkshire Vets has been going for well over 200 years, um, not necessarily under that name, but the, the history of the practice can be can be uh, traced back to the beginnings of the veterinary industry, which was which was over 200 years ago. Um, we we work in Leeds and Bradford's. Um, providing care for the, the pets of the, the local area. Small animal pets. Small animal pets, obviously. Yeah, we don't. We no longer deal with large animals. It was part of the business up until late nineties. The late nineties, yeah. So you know, we're all small animal now. Um, Stephen has been uh, with us since. When did you join the practice? Just after they stopped doing the large animals. So is yeah, there, in, the, is, in the late nineties as well. Yeah. Is that a rational decision to to move to a practice without large animal? Or? I I would have never worked at a large animal practice. I didn't have a, enough for me experience um, and knowledge. So I kind of had the experience and knowledge of small animals. So that's why I'm I'm stuck with them. Um, and so yeah, this this podcast series will will give you a bit of an insight into what it's like working in a in a vet practice this first episode we're going to discuss what it's like being a vet I suppose how you qualify what what it's like day to day what are the pros and cons of, of becoming a vet what are maybe some of the misconceptions um, that people have about the veterinary industry um, now I suppose the uh, the most sensible place to start would be why why the vet industry um, why did you decide that that vet work was something that you wanted to pursue a career in well, I kind of grew up in a medical family. Mum, mum's a nurse, dad's a doctor. Um, my brother was the year above me in the veterinary school. And uh, during the final two years of school, you have to choose which professions you want to do. And uh, I kind of knew I wanted to do something in the medical field. And I also had a love for animals. So it just seemed like a natural pathway. Speaking of your love for animals, I suppose it sort of goes without saying that you, you are yourself a pet owner. Um Perhaps more than just a pet owner, you, you, you are quite known for having a huge variety of pets, a, a menagerie, if you will. Um, do you fancy giving us a quick rundown of, of all, all the pets and, and animals that you look after on a day-to-day basis? Um, well, at the moment, uh, there's a couple of horses, uh, a couple of Rhodesian Ridgebacks, uh, there's five cats, uh, and we have some carp in the pond outside, and we've got some indoor tropical fish and some indoor goldfish as well. So quite the menagerie. And you also have, I believe, a wild fox living in your garden, which... Uh, the fox turns up every now and then, yep. <laughs> so plenty to keep you, to keep you busy. Yep. I suppose the first thing that we should discuss is what it really takes to become a vet. You know, what are the qualifications you require, what kind of the dedication that's required to, to get into the profession. Um, so, you know, what was your first step towards becoming a vet? Um, well, I, I did mine in Australia. I, I went to the University of Queensland, so the system over there is rather different to what it is over here. But it's basically the last two years of your schooling year goes towards something called your tertiary entrance score. Uh, you have to do certain subjects in Australia to get into it. You have to do reasonably well at school to get into it. And then once you get into the degree, then you spend five years of uh, a bit of hard hard labour really to to get the degree. 
so obviously once you've qualified you you become a vet um there's a there's quite a steep learning curve even once you've progressed beyond the actual degree itself and um, what did you think was the the hardest hardest step to make from being a, a veterinary student to becoming a fully qualified vet well your five years gives you all the knowledge but the not the practical uh competence really so when you first come out it's a bit of a a minefield to to come into and uh uh, you've got to kind of learn all the new drugs in each practice that you go to there's idiosyncrasies with every place that you go uh so it is a steep learning curve and you have to keep challenging yourself to learn to do more things be able to accomplish more surgeries uh and uh it's all just more learning throughout your career and I suppose one of the main elements of your job, particularly you, as you work primarily at a branch surgery, so you're a sort of GP vet, really. You you, you deal with animals on a day-to-day basis, much like a, a human GP might. Your interaction with clients and their pets on a one-to-one basis has got to be kind of up to scratch. That's got to be a key part of your job. Yeah, I never really wanted to be a specialist in any field. I've always... Uh, my dad was a GP, I guess, you know, following his footsteps to a certain degree. Um, and just you get to learn to uh, know the clients, their pets, uh, getting familiarized with all that sort of thing. So it's not just about the medical side of things. It's about getting to learn people and their animals so that you can best learn almost how to treat them as people as well as uh, their needs, as well as the pet's needs. So when when dealing with pet owners, it's it's a given, I suppose, that people have different levels of medical knowledge. They have different levels of understanding of of the things, the subjects that you discuss during a consultation. So, how do you find pitching your the way you speak in a consult towards those different types of client? Um, I think you really need to always kind of think back to when you weren't trained as a vet what was your medical knowledge so that that's the base point of trying to explain how we got things to explain to in lectures and if you find out that people's understanding they'll, they'll often refer back to you uh, you know I, I understand what hypertension is and therefore you, you know that from that point of view that they you know if they're doctors and nurses or, or have medical knowledge then you don't have to necessarily explain things as simply as you would do for someone without any medical knowledge and it is just trying to pitch the right level and it's just talking to people to try and understand that um i've had two clients this year one was a retired vet and one was an actual vet who's got a doctorate uh, down at one of the universities so um that's kind of almost intimidating for me to talk to them because uh, uh, you feel as though you're being judged more on, on what you're doing but uh, uh yeah it, it is difficult and you have to keep um constantly getting feedback from the owners to to make sure that they can understand what what you're saying and and what your treatment plans are I suppose that is the key to a successful consultation really is a full level of interaction between you and the client. The As a pet owner, they've got to be honest with you. They, if they are saying their dog's overweight and they don't know why and are not telling you that they're giving a, a Sunday lunch every week or if they're withholding information that even that they might be embarrassed about, then that's not going to benefit the animal themselves. So the key to it is... It's full transparency, really, between between yourself and the owner. And it, and if anyone ever um, is evasive about giving that information, it must make the whole thing a lot more difficult. Well, yeah, that is true. I mean, there's one case that springs to mind, and uh, it was a, an owner who was actually kind of embarrassed, I think, because... Uh, 
her dog had had uh, two surgeries already to remove a baby's dummy and uh, the the dog had another problem and, and she was actually pretending it was her other dog because she was embarrassed and uh, that kind of has implications as to what's going to happen on with the surgery so it's it's better to tell the truth and we're not here to judge people we're here to you know get animals better to the best of our ability so if people are op- open and honest and the same is expected of us we should be open and honest as well if we don't know things we should be telling people that we don't know things and telling them what we think is the best way to move forward to to come to a positive conclusion for both the owner and for the animal yeah i suppose there has to be a, a sort of acceptance at some level that the medical field is so wide-ranging that it's impossible for you to know absolutely everything. And there's got to be an understanding that sometimes you might need to look things up in a textbook. Sometimes you might need to speak to one of our other vets who's got more of a speciality in, in a different area. Um, and that's that's not a weakness in the consulting vet. It's utilising the skills that are available to them um, and the resources. It's almost a weakness if you don't get the help because... You look at the medical field, you know, there's so many specialisms within the human field. And then you come down to the the animal field, there's the large animal and small animal. And then there's specialisms within the small animal field. But the very, very kind of broad specialisms, you wouldn't ever have a, a kind of a medicine specialist expected to do everything medicine in the human field. They'd be broken down into enterologists, gastrologists. And in our field, it's just one big labelling of, of medicine specialists. So... The specialisms that exist in veterinary medicine are kind of broader than they are in the human field, but we are—they are there to be lent on. And you know, there are people who who've got these specialisms, and to not get them to help you is—it's not doing the right thing for the client. It's not doing the right thing for the animal. Right. I mean, an example potentially of that is that in human medicine, it, it sometimes isn't even bracketed as human medicine, but um, you go and see a dentist. In the world of human medicine, that's entirely separate from your GP. Whereas a vet is your your dog or cat or whichever animal. It's their dentist, it's their doctor, it's their pharmacist. It's it's everything rolled into one. And I think I think sometimes people don't appreciate the the wide ranging knowledge that's required to be a vet. Yeah, we are jack of all trades. And when I said earlier that kind of my dad was a GP and, and you compare me as a GP, I, he did some surgery, he did some um, obstetrics. Um, but um, when you compare it to what we're doing and, you know, your, your typical GPs are, are doing abdominal surgeries on a regular basis, the, the dentists are checking out the eyes and ears. We're doing absolutely, you know, loads more than a, a typical GP would do particularly from a surgical point of view. Um, and then there is also surgical specialism on top of that. But we are jacks of all trades. Um, and even just kind of when you think about the um, the different species, I mean, everyone has their own kind of abilities within the species. And for me, it, it's it's mainly cats and dogs is where the, you know, if you can call it a specialism lies. Um, but then when you come down to the exotic animals like your lizards and your geckos, there's specialists for those. And most of the time when we, we're dealing with the, the small furries, the rabbits, the guinea pigs, a lot of the knowledge that we have from that is derived from our uh, knowledge on cats and dogs. And we have to kind of use that knowledge to, to treat different species. And uh, it's one of those things that you just have to do as a vet. You have to have knowledge on, on lots of different things to get through your day. I suppose largely the um, medical 
knowledge required for treating mammals is all within a certain realm, I suppose. Um, as you mentioned, lizards and, and other kind of different types of species, they're, they're much more specialised knowledge. So if you are an owner of, of an exotic pet, or are you planning to be an owner of an exotic pet, finding a vet who specialises particularly in those vets is quite important, in those species, sorry, is, is very important because uh, with the best one in the world, it's an entirely separate um, kind of route for, for a vet to take to become a specialist in those to, to treating mammals. Yeah, I mean, even within the mammals, there's, there's massive variations. And um, just just taking sim- simple drug things like the the paracetamols and the aspirins that, that people take, um, giving those to, to cats and dogs can have serious implications because they don't metabolise through the liver as, as quickly as people do. So it can lead to overdosings quite easily. So that's within the mammal species. When you go out of the mammal species and go into, you know, the reptilian species, for example, it's their metabolisms are different. The drugs are therefore act differently within their bodies. So it is a completely and utterly different almost industry in itself. So I suppose when you're making a decision to become a vet, um, Primarily, it's it's a love of animals that that gives you that desire. Um, obviously, also an interest in in medicine and, and anatomy and, and what have you. Um, now, it's something that's not often talked about really um, before you qualified uh, to become a vet. But the financial rewards of being a vet compared to the financial rewards of becoming a, a human doctor or, or or working in human medicine, it's it's fair to say it's significantly lower uh, working in the animal field yeah well I mean when I was in my lectures um, the one of the things uh, that we got taught in our first year if you want to make it make loads of money then don't become a vet um, and there is a, a misconception that kind of we are rolling in cash and I think it's because of the lack of understanding of how much it costs to treat animals and people um, Adequately, the um, I think with the national health system here, there's no concept of how much it costs to go see your GP. Um, what is the cost to the the taxpayer for that? So when it comes down to then the animal side of things, there's no actual you know spectrum of what to expect. And you know you do get the the complaint of oh your anaesthetic's two hundred pounds. Uh, that's ridiculous. Well, people don't have a concept of how much it costs to provide that anaesthetic from the building to the training to the equipment used so and to be quite honest a lot of the people that actually work within the veterinary industry unless you're seeing the accounts um, you don't know the expense of treating animals so uh, it's it, it can vary from vets to vets because of things like investment in equipment investment in building investment in training and materials used so there is still variety within the veterinary industry of, of the cost but it is a, a quite an expensive industry to uh, run and unfortunately that means uh, the costs need to be passed on to the clients right I mean that's a subject that we probably will touch on in much more depth in a, in a future podcast I think it's it's something that's worth reiterating and, and just informing people of the costs inherent in running uh, a, um, a vet practice and providing the services that we provide Um obviously that has an effect on on vets working day to day there is always striking a balance between 
the gold standard, if you will, of care and also providing a treatment plan that's affordable for, for the client that's standing in front of you. Obviously, people have different means. Um, people have different levels of insurance cover. Um, so it's not always possible to provide that, that gold standard. How do you find dealing with striking that balance? It's all about informed consent with an owner. You have to discuss what you think the best treatment policies are uh, and the costs associated with it. And if it's unaffordable, then it is managing to to try and find a a way that's affordable, um, but it's still looking after the pet. And uh, people often think it's cynical that vets are asking if there's insurance on their pets. And part of the reason for for vets liking that and particularly the junior vets is they get to feel that they can do the best thing that they can do for the patient and and that's ultimately what vets want to do we don't want to be talking about money we don't want to be you know discussing you know finances we we didn't get into this industry to do that we got into into this industry to uh, look after pets get them better and do the best what we can do but there unfortunately there are restrictions and we have to work within those restrictions so obviously discussing costs, discussing dealing with clients, it's it would probably be remiss of me to not discuss the fact that um, in the veterinary industry and particularly among vets, uh, got one of the highest suicide rates of of any profession in the UK. Um, now, what potentially do you think that could be down to? It's I mean, there's obviously you're dealing with death on a regular basis. You're dealing with being unable to treat people's animals due to financial constraints you know there's various kind of elements that that you know potentially could combine to that what's what's your take on it um i think it's just pressure from from so many different places i mean you 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 think of just your your normal employer employee relationship that the employees have kind of the i've got a responsibility to the practice uh, and they've got a responsibility to the owner and they've got a responsibility to the pet and they're kind of three pressures that are coming down upon you it's also not easy to switch off when you know, you can forget almost about all the good things that have happened but a lot of us do focus on the the kind of negative that that person that complains can often you know be weeks and months where you you're thinking about it and the case that didn't quite go to you know to plan where we where you've lost them and you kind of go home at night and it's it's not easy to switch off and those sorts of things can weigh on your mind and we all you know are in this to to get animals better so when they're not getting better it's a it's a real burden on our stresses and uh, you know you put that in with the stress of the the finances within the business the stress of the employment um, you've always got the the concerns over the, the the hierarchy that that run the the veterinary industry as well the there's pressures from there and then I also think that kind of the long hours the weekends there's so many different things that uh, you know night shifts there's all those sorts of pressures are coming together um, it can sometimes be a bit of a lonely profession as well if, if you're in a you know a small branch and you're, you're on your own and working out of hours working out of hours it's the same you're often lots of hours and then there's also the availability of of things that you can harm yourself with um, we have the the euthanasia solutions we have the the drugs um, and in the large animal field they've, they've got guns uh, as well so there's the the pressures and the also availability and I think that combination can be a lethal combination for, for some people and um, I, I've known people who have committed suicide and uh, 
Um, I've known people who've gone off and you know for for stress reasons, and it, it's it, it sounds horrible, but it's part and parcel of the industry that um, isn't talked about. Um, it's kind of there are there are kind of people that do talk about it, but in general, it, it's it's kind of swept under the carpet, and we're just left there to you know deal with the stresses on our own. And uh, I think that's the the main reason. Yeah, I mean it's just from that brief conversation there it sounds like it's potentially something that we we ought to look into in further detail maybe in a in a future episode of the podcast um but i think it's probably safe to say that people it, it's very much appreciated when an owner says thank you rewards you for a good job by even a thank you card or just just leaving a a, a nice email to to the practice just letting you know you've done a good a good job because those negative comments that you sometimes get um, can quite easily outweigh the positive comments. People typically don't write to their vet practice when they're happy. They write to their vet practice when they're upset. Yeah, we we were kind of fortunate here. We do get quite a lot of thank you letters, and we do get you know people bringing the biscuits and the chocolates, and and they are you know very much appreciated. And it, it's always nice to hear positive comments. It's always nice to know that you're doing the right thing. Recommendations is, is, you know, one of those things that's really nice. It shows that, you know, in a in a way that you have done the job well enough for someone to appreciate what you've done to be able to recommend you on and the positive reviews and all those sorts of things are really appreciated. It does make you feel like you are doing the job uh, to the best of your ability and it is appreciated. And it, it's like I said in the, the previous question, though, it sometimes it's the the negative person that that you know is usually unjustified that is the thing that is the the kind of leaving memory that you can have for the day and, and unfortunately i think a lot of vets do act like that uh, they dwell the, on, on they dwell on the negative rather than focus on all the positive work that you can do so we've uh, we've gone down to the 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 more the darker the more depressing end of of the job um, and i think we should probably given that it's our first episode, drag it back up a little bit and have a bit more of a... Uh, Gladly. An, ...an amusing side of the conversation. So you de- you must deal with a huge variety of cases, you know, a huge variety of clients. Um, what, are the, what are the most exciting things that you like to see walk through the door? What are the things that really kind of make your day as a vet? I, I, to be quite honest, I think most people like puppies and kittens... Uh, you know, just the, the waggy little puppy on the table is always going to put a smile on your face, and a cute little kitten that's letting you stroke its belly—they—they're always the the things that are always going to brighten up your day. Um, it is a, a job that has loads of rewards to it as well, because you know, getting animals better is a rewarding thing. It does make you feel good that you've done the right thing for the for an animal, and and obviously for the owner as well. So they are very positive things, and. One of the things that you can never say that your, your job's dull. No two days are, are the same. Um, you've got different cases. And even, you know, after 20-odd years in the business, I'm still seeing new things. Uh, I'm still seeing things I've never seen before. And it, it's, you know, this variation within the different species and within the species that comes through the door every day. It, uh, it does keep challenging you, and you, you do keep seeing different things. Speaking of that variation... Um there's obviously some very common things you see regularly and then there's some some less common things what is the strangest thing that you've ever seen I, I, you know the strangest thing that comes to mind that you you've seen working as a vet 
Um, possibly the, the kind of almost the biggest shock I ever had was um, uh, I was doing a routine bitch spay. So getting in there, um, removing the ovaries of all intensively what was a, a nice little staffy. Uh, and uh, instead of uh, out popping the ovaries, a pop a pair of testicles popped out in their place. And uh, so that's kind of one of those very unusual things you're kind of double taking. It's like, that's testicles where ovaries should be. And that turned out to be a hermaphrodite. Uh, so the, it had testicles where the ovaries should be. It had a normal uterus, uh, had a normal looking lady parts downstairs, um, but it also uh, had a, a penis bone in there as well. So those are the sorts of things that you, you kind of see once once in a lifetime as a vet um, but they, that was probably one of the, the, the biggest shocks that I've had I seem to recall you you even wrote an article about that which I'll, uh, I'll see if we can maybe link to in the uh, in the uh, description of this on the website um, I'm not a big author but I did write about that <laughs> and I think I have the article somewhere at home we'll have a dig, dig through and see if we can find that um, so I mean and coming across something like that with your level of experience must be you know much more simple if you'd if you'd have walked out of vet school you'd been out for a year and you came across that do you think it would have been so easy for you to to diagnose it do you think you would have been more confused by by the situation or or is is it your experience that led you to diagnose that quite quickly and and understand what you were seeing under that circumstances it it I think any vet would have been able to work out the testicles. We know what testicles well, look like. Uh, but, you know, it's... Yeah, experience does help. Um, and uh, it, it is something that, you know, the, the longer you've been a vet, the more things you've seen, the more things you've, you've kind of had to, to deal with, and therefore experience does help. But equally so, the younger vets that are coming out of the university have, have been taught the, the most recent techniques, the most recent advancements. So there are advantages of, of, of the younger vets, and um, I'm lucky to work at a branch where we've got a mix of that. So uh, I've got younger vets coming out of university who are teaching me things, as well as I'm able to help teach them things as well. So uh, just hopping back to that particular surgery, um, obviously, like, as you mentioned, that it's it's fairly obvious what a testicle looks like. So you you know any qualified vet or anyone who has has even worked in that type of surgery would know what a testicle looks like. My expectation potentially was that it was malformed in some way, but where they literally they looked as if they'd been just released from a scrotum, effectively. Yep, <laughs> they they uh, they're kind of smaller than you would be, but that happens with any retained testicle, any testicle that hasn't descended uh, down into the scrotum. But yeah, they they're pretty obvious little testicles. They looked like that. They had a little vas deferens on them, so um, so that was a, another identifying feature of them. Excellent. So as we've as we've previously mentioned, it's it's a varied job. Some things are great. Some things are awful there's a huge variety from day to day what's the thing that is the most disgusting or the 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 least pleasant part of your job well there's kind of two bits to that really there's there's kind of uh, the two unpleasant parts the getting hit by an animal you know whether it's uh uh i've been bitten quite a few times on the face and the arm probably the scariest was uh, a rottweiler biting me on the chest um there's the the cat scratches and cat bites and uh, that's uh, you know had a few of the the vets and the nurses in the hospitals. There's um, uh, I had part of my skin stripped off by a terrapin bite once uh, and there's lots of little 
you know, hamster bites and gerbil bites. So, so getting bitten is never a pleasant thing, or injured is never a pleasant thing. Um, I quite often get hit in the um, the delicates by wagging tails and uh, kind of dog heads and dog paws as they get excited. So even the excited ones can uh, cause a bit of damage. But probably the the worst part of of, of all is. Uh, excretions and uh, uh, they come from various areas I, I don't kind of after all these years a bit of splash of wee doesn't seem to be such an issue for me these days uh, um, but uh, yeah I think probably the worst thing is, is when you're expressing anal glands and uh, they're going all over you and, and occasionally they do go all over you and I don't think there's too many vets who haven't had anal gland to the face at some time and I think that's uh, not the most pleasant thing to happen and then when you're left with that smell for the rest of the day oh it's a treat yeah certainly when you you, uh, you wander through the vet surgery every now and again you'll you'll get that telltale whiff and you'll know that somebody's been in for their anal glands clearing yeah um, when, you're, when you're walking around as the anal gland smell well, <laughs> that's even worse absolutely <laughs> Um, so that sort of we'll sort of wrap it up, I suppose. Now, um, have you got sort of any advice that you you would hand out to anybody who who wanted to become a vet? I mean, this is this is primarily, I suppose, aimed at, at kids who are you know potentially choosing their GCSEs, they're or maybe progressing onto A level if they want to work with animals, if they want to become a vet. Um, what would your advice be to pursue this career? I think well first of all you're going to have to work hard uh, at school to to obtain the grades to get into it but I think the main thing I would be saying is is only get into this industry if you really have a a true passion to be looking after animals and uh, uh, and getting them better because there's no other reason why you should be getting into this industry that's fantastic thank you very much Um, so we're going to call that call that quits for today Um, we will be back with another episode in in a couple of weeks time this in theory, will be a fortnightly show. Um, we will also have videos put up in the intervening weeks on our YouTube page, which is youtube.com slash Yorkshire Vets. Um, it would be greatly appreciated if you could subscribe to this podcast um, and leave us a review, particularly on iTunes, uh, as that helps get the podcast heard by, by more people. We'd love to hear your feedback. Um, you can get in touch with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Yorkshire Vets. Um, on Twitter at twitter.com slash Yorkshire Vets uh, and even on Instagram where you can see a few photos from the day-to-day goings-on of the surgery um, that's instagram.com slash Yorkshire Vets um, you can also check out our website www.yorkshirevets.co.uk which has got information about us as a practice um, interesting articles about the veterinary world um, different breeds of dog and cat uh, various other things that you might want to check out um, but most importantly make sure you um, come back and listen to us again in a couple of weeks time if you've got any questions that you'd like us to answer we would like to finish these shows with a question and answer session so um, if you've got any questions please do send them in particularly if they're of a veterinary nature that, that you'd like Steve to answer for you um, or just other more general animal questions um, so please do get in touch um, until then have a great couple of weeks and we'll see you next time thanks very much see you later, see you later.